Computer, initialize Holosuite. Hello everyone and a very warm welcome back. I can't believe it's already time for me to record the 11th episode of this podcast. I've really been enjoying it up to this point and I hope that you have also been enjoying this podcast. If you like the podcast, please remember to subscribe on the Sci-Fi Feminist YouTube channel and also click follow or like on any of the platforms that you are listening to and I will continue to bring you really interesting content about women and feminism and popular culture and I hope you can continue to enjoy this podcast that I'm doing. Right, so today I decided after some contemplation that I would like to do today's episode on one of my favorite, favorite characters in Star Trek, which is the ex-Borg Seven of Nine. Now, Star Trek Voyager was the first Star Trek that I watched. I actually started watching it because I was doing research on it for chapter three of my PhD. But then I got so into it and I think now I am already on my third watch of the series. Um, there's about 172 episodes from season one to season seven of Star Trek Voyager. And I've watched it at least twice or three times. So um, yeah, you can imagine the amount of hours I have spent watching Voyager after the past few years because I just fell in love with the whole premise of the show. We have this captain who is 75,000 light years away from Earth who navigates her crew home skillfully. As you know, Captain Janeway is one of my favorite people in fiction too. And um, then, of course, they introduced Seven of Nine towards the end of season four, was it? In the two-part episode Scorpion. I really loved that episode. And since then, we see how Seven of Nine really becomes a well-rounded character. And for me, what's so beautiful about Seven of Nine is her journey from being a Borg or being basically a machine to being a human being, her journey to humanity that's also guided by Captain Janeway along the way. And um, for that reason, and many others, uh, she became one of my favorite characters. So today I'm very happy to share my research on Seven of Nine. I actually wrote quite a bit on her in my PhD thesis, and I'm hoping to write a paper on her and the other cyborgs from Seven of uh, from Star Trek as well. So I, I really hope you enjoy this episode and um, yeah, let me get right into it. So I will talk a bit about the idea of cyborgs and female cyborgs in academia and then I'll go on to a really fun analysis of Seven of Nine and how she is both subversive and not. Um, so yes, I hope you enjoy this episode. Right, so the idea of the female cyborg is firmly embedded with within the feminist framework of cyber feminism. Now, cyber feminism is not really something I'm going to go into today. Um, basically, cyber feminism is about women's use of technologies. And um, maybe I will explain a little bit of that. Um, <clears throat> people have argued that Technology, uh, we understand technology to be genderless, obviously. Um, my TV doesn't necessarily have a gender. Uh, but one author, her name is Amanda Dupria. Uh, she's actually an academic at our um, 
department where I am, and I'm a big fan of her work, um, she argued that actually technology is not neutral, but it has a gender, and that the gender favored by most technologies is masculinity. Because women are traditionally associated with the embodied feminine and natural sphere, men are are associated with the disembodied masculine and technological world. This is a very old dichotomy uh, that has been set up uh, because women have the ability to give birth. Women have been considered to be closer to nature and to the earth. And obviously that makes women supposedly more primitive. Um, and then men have been established as the rulers of the technological world, the cultural world, the world of thinking, uh, which creates that unfortunately unequal dichotomy that we have been, that we have known for the past like hundreds of years. Now, Women have largely been denied as creators and inventors of technology. Women are always seen as the mere users of technology. And this relates back to the history of the telephone, um, how women were the operators of telephones during the 1950s, I think, and uh, how women use telephones <laughs> to gossip and call each other. Uh, there are many more aspects to it, but in general, women are considered the the users of technology and then men, the creators of technology. And that's not because technology is necessarily masculine. Um, technology can't have a gender, but technology has been socially constructed as being masculine. Owing to essentializing notions that women are embodied and natural and men are disembodied and technological. And I think this is a stereotype that we still see today. Actually, there's a stereotype that women are bad at computers or women don't know how computers work <laughs> or, um, yeah, I've, and I've experienced this myself. I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a whiz at computers, but every time I get something right on Microsoft Word or Excel, then my supervisor is like, oh my goodness, you're the best. You know, how do you know so much about this technology? Um, but it's, it's not... <laughs> Yeah, I'm not that great at technology, but um, this has been kind of the, the stereotype. And then, of course, this is untrue. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with the recent discovery of a black hole. Um, I'm not sure exactly what it was all about, but they recently discovered this black hole like 90 million light years away. And actually... It was assumed that men were the research team, but actually there was a woman that was really pivotal for that research team and pivotal for for uh, finding that black hole and imaging it. I think the big deal was that they captured an image of this black hole that is really, really far away. Then there's, of course, Ada Lovelace. Now, the programming language or the coding language that we use today to code computers it was actually invented by a woman, but no one knows this. And some feminists have argued that actually women have been obscured in the history of technology. It was actually women that assembled all the chips for the computers in the way back when they still did that. And women since the beginning of technology have actually been very involved in it. Ada Lovelace is quite famous. Uh, if you Google her, you might find um, she was actually 
accused of being mentally insane because she was so mathematically brilliant. And there's, of course, the stereotype that women are hysterical, and especially in those days, like in the late uh, 1900, early 20th century, women were often accused of hysteria. That was like a thing <laughs> that women had. So one, if women were brilliant, if they had some like mathematical or scientific ability, they were either, either accused of being witches or they were accused of being hysterical. So she was actually accused of being hysterical. And, um, but Ada Lovelace, she, she made the, the programming language that we use still today or that is the foundation of the programming language that we use today. So actually women have been involved in technology from the very beginning. And then some cyber feminist activism actually revolves around finding these archives and at, and actually pointing out that like, listen, women did this. <laughs> women made these computers. Women uh, invented programming. Uh, women did all of this, but it's kind of been exper exp been obscured from from history because there's just the stereotype and I'm, I'm not sure how this happened but uh, women are still considered the mere create the mere users of technology and men the creators even though that is not the case right but that's enough on cyber feminism I, I'm not going to keep talking about that one very important paper that came from cyber feminism and actually Lots of people say that this is not a cyber feminist text, but it's been considered, it's, well, it's been established, I think, after a few decades as one of the, the most important texts for cyber feminism. And it is called a cyber, Cyborg Manifesto by Donna Haraway. So Donna Haraway's Cyborg Manifesto, it was written in 1991, is very seminal. She theorized this cyborg, which is, I quote, a cybernetic organism, a hybrid of machine and organism, a creature of social reality, as well as a creature of fiction. So she wrote this entire very difficult essay. I, I've read the Cyborg Manifesto maybe 10 times by now. And every time I'm like, oh, wow, OK, now finally that makes sense. <laughs> it's quite a difficult text to read. Um, but in it, she, she theorized this cyborg. Now, her cyborg has actually been interpreted as a metaphor in some instances. So some people have gone very philosophical with this thing to say like, oh, you know, what is technology? Technology is, it's not just about computers and uh, TVs and Playstations and Xboxes and things, but technology um, has a much broader definition. So actually anything that we use to make life easier for ourselves is technology. So this argument continues and then some theorists say that, for example, using a pencil also is using technology because you use the pencil to, as an extension of yourself to do something that you would normally not be able to do then they would argue that, okay, well, we can trace this back then to like the cavemen that used tools to carve into rocks or that used spears to hunt animals. That makes them cyborgs as well. So there's this really philosophical debate and you can really go into it a lot. Um, obviously, Haraway, if you look at the late 
at the 1990s and early 2000s, there was this whole thing of the millennium bug and people were starting to use prosthetics. And I see now Elon Musk has put a, a, a chip into a monkey, a brain chip. So she, she kind of theorized the cyborg as that, you know, we are becoming one with technology not necessarily only through these cybernetic implants and <laughs> brain chips in monkeys, but um, in a much more um, deeper sense that like, you know, we are connected to our computers, our phones, we are really cyborgs, we are all cyborgs, not just people that have cybernetic implants. So those are the kind of arguments that are coming out in this paper called the Cyborg Manifesto. It's all very philosophical and very interesting, um, but I would like to look today at more literal cyborgs, not these really philosophical ones, which are the ones that we find in popular culture. So the cyborg has also increased or representations of cyborgs have also increased in the 1990s. We see suddenly the Terminator, who is basically a machine that looks like a human being, comes in and then we see... Um, the the Borg Queen was introduced in Star Trek, uh, what was it called, First Contact, the movie for the first time. And all of a sudden, there's just this explosion of cyborgs in popular culture. And Seven of Nine is one of them. Now, the definition of a cyborg that I, I'm using is, is not the philosophical one, but the more literal one, which is basically a, a person uh, that is a hybrid of a machine and human being. So that is the, the, the basic definition of a cyborg that I'm going with to discuss seven of nine. Now, the cyborg is quite interesting. And as Donna Haraway explains in her paper, the subversive potential of the cyborg lies in its ideological breaking down of the binaries such as male or female, nature, culture, public, private, embodied, disembodied, and so forth. Because suddenly we see that there are women who are supposedly incompatible with technology because technology is masculine. But suddenly these women like Seven of Nine and the Borg Queen, they are masters of these technologies and these technologies are part of them. So the cyborg poses very subversive possibilities because it can break down these, these really established binaries. So Donna Haraway argues that the cyborg exists in a post-gender world where the boundaries between human and machine and human and animal and masculine and feminine become increasingly blurred. And I will explain that now when I talk about Seven of Nine. So in this way, the cyborg may have the ability to redefine other oppositional terms as well, such as masculine and feminine, nature and culture, and other socially constructed dualisms. Because when someone is both human and machine, it means they're also neither human nor machine. <laughs> and um, these types of dualisms become increasingly blurred and it becomes very interesting. Donna Haraway further argues that the cyborg skips the step of original unity that stipulates that women are inferior to men. So this is, of course, referring to the age-old creation myth of Adam and Eve. Because the cyborg does not identify with the natural world and 
The natural world, as I explained, is the world that ties women to the role of childbirth and it presents the possibility of reconfiguring these dichotomies created by social relations to push forward a feminist agenda. Okay, I hope I'm making sense and that this isn't all gibberish. But basically, to to rephrase what I just said, because the cyborg, so Donna Haraway says that the cyborg wasn't born because it's not fully human. So it skips this step of the creation. It goes beyond the creation myth. It says that we're not created from the earth, but we are partly created from technology. So because of that element, um, actually all these dichotomies that tie women to the earth are possibly subverted. Okay, so for Haraway, the cyborg is a kind of, and I'm quoting, a kind of disassembled and reassembled postmodern collective of personal self. And this is the self that feminists must code. Okay, so because the cyborg is able to break down these binaries, it also has the possibility for these binaries to be re-established. And re-established not in a patriarchal way, but a way that feminists can re-establish and recode these certain binaries. So, yes, I'm sorry for all of that academic stuff. Uh, that is that is why I, I struggle to read that paper, because it is so uh, heavy. It is so difficult. But I hope that these few things that I've explained gives a solid framework for discussing Femin of Seven of Nine. Okay, so... Um, and I think I mentioned this in an earlier episode somewhere. Actually, the first significant female character in science fiction was a cyborg that fits Haraway's description. Her name was Maria from this very freaky movie called Metropolis. So she, she's considered to be the first, the first cyborg ever, or the first female cyborg ever, at least. So that movie is very interesting. It's a black and white movie, and it's a silent movie. It was released in 1927. Maria is basically a blue-collar worker in the city of Metropolis, and then she's captured by a male scientist and replaced with an android that resembles her. This movie is really cool because the special effects are all like handmade and there's no CGI and it's a very beautiful movie if you want to watch it. Um, but then the interesting thing and and I think Maria just, you know, set the tone for the representation of all cyborgs from that point on. Because Maria, she's a robot, which is supposedly supposed to be androgynous. Uh, robots are not supposed to have genders because they're machines. But the interesting thing about Maria is that she's noticeably feminine and she can even be considered as sexualized. Now I'm talking about the robot <laughs> called Maria. So the android, before it, so it's first this robot and then it takes on the, the, the form of the human Maria. But before it becomes human again, it has a clearly defined bust, so you can see that it has breasts, it has generous hips, and it has a thin waist, and it has discernible collarbones and high shoulders. And I feel like this is where Haraway's ideal of the cyborg that is able to break down dichotomies and do all these really wonderful things, it's immediately undermined. Because suddenly we have this machine that is female, but the machine is already 
coded as explicitly feminine, big busts, all these things that objectify women is seen in this first ever cyborg. And since that time on, most female cyborgs, okay, maybe not recent ones, which I will talk about in a later episode, but the likes of Seven of Nine, uh, the Borg Queen, the TX model from Terminator, I think it's the third Terminator movie, all, I think it's called Rise of the Machines. Um, all of these female cyborgs from this point on have been sexualized. So even though the cyborg has, the female cyborg at least, has all of these subversive uh, uh, potentials, at the end of the day, they still end up being sexualized, which is for me a problem. And um, if you know Seven of Nine, if you've seen her, if you know what she looks like, she is extremely, extremely sexualized. So I will talk about that a little bit later, but let me briefly introduce Seven of Nine. So yes, like I mentioned earlier, she come, she joined Star Trek Voyager towards the end of the fourth season. And uh, there's a really brilliant two-part episode called Scorpion, where Captain Janeway basically rescues Seven of Nine from the Borg Collective. So Seven of Nine was, according to Star Trek lore, assimilated when she was six years old, I think, and then she was part of the Collective for 18 years. So she's been Borg since she was really small, really young. And... Um, People have said that the writers of Voyager decided to bring her onto the set because they were losing views. Um, the first appeal or the initial appeal of Voyager was this female captain, like first female captain ever in Star Trek. But then we see that, um, yeah, I think the, the appeal wore off after four seasons or so. And then um, they brought Seven of Nine to get the ratings up again. So that is one of the reasons why Seven of Nine, or that might be one of the reasons why she's so sexualized. Because, um, yeah, up to that point, there wasn't really any eye candy in Voyager. Although I, I, I always thought Captain Janeway was quite beautiful. Um, <laughs> maybe in a more traditional sense, there was no sexy female character in the series like we saw in the previous Star Trek series. Um, in The Next Generation, we have... Diana Troy and Beverly Crusher, who are both quite beautiful, and sometimes they they don't wear their androgynous Starfleet uniforms, so we get to see their bodies. Um, and of course, in Star Trek: The Original Series, there are many sexualized women in there, mostly Captain Kirk's various lovers. So I think, and um, some people have said that is why Seven of Nine was brought onto the set. And some people say that that's why Kate Mulgrew and Jerry Ryan had such a bad relationship because Kate Mulgrew was upset about this. Um, I've heard an interview where Kate Mulgrew said that she really hoped that, uh, you know, there for the first time there could be a Star Trek that has a really strong female character that's not sexualized. But um, then eventually they brought Seven of Nine on. And um, I'm not sure if you know, but there was apparently a lot of fights between Kate Mulgrew and Jerry Ryan on set because uh, they didn't like each other. Um, maybe because Kate Mulgrew, because of this thing. So, um, yes, that is Seven of Nine. Um, in the beginning, she wears this really 
really tight silver catsuit. I've also read that um, Jerry Ryan struggled to breathe in her Seven of Nine outfit, and then um, she she often like fainted on set because she she just couldn't breathe in that suit. And then also getting out of the suit took like thirty minutes. So every time she had to take a bathroom break, they literally had to like stop the production and stop everything because she had to go to the bathroom and then you know people need to help her to get out of that suit so and i must say it looks very uncomfortable and um interestingly you know that people say why why is she why doesn't she wear the starfleet outfit well cuz you know she didn't go th- to starfleet academy but also um you know that tight outfit is is quite unnecessary um yeah so lots of people have argued that um yeah, Star Trek Voyager just kind of turned the Borg into soft porn <laughs> when they brought Seven of Nine on the set. So there is that element of her, but there's a lot about Seven of Nine that is very much more interesting than that. And there's a lot about her that is actually quite subversive. So let me talk about that a little bit. So there's another one of my favorite theorists. Her name is Mia Consalvo. Mia Consalvo wrote an an article about the Borg, and I think she wrote about the Borg Queen as well. But she said that actually Seven provides an alternative view to the gendering of women in Star Trek up to that point because her personality lacks many, if not all, traditional feminine markers due to being a Borg drone for most of her life. Consalvo argues that... Seven shows little interest in social skills. She does not display sympathetic behavior, affection or emotion, and she's unparalleled in her knowledge of technology. This, of course, is a big contrast to all these stereotypes about women. Uh, Women are stereotyped as being naturally sympathetic, affectionate and emotional and as not knowing what technology is all about or not having any technological expertise. So in in this way, actually Seven is quite subversive because she doesn't fit into the stereotype of what an average woman is or what an average woman does. And um, the other day I watched an episode, uh, it's called Will You Take My Hand? It's in season five where the doctor tries to teach Seven some social skills. And then Seven goes on a date (laughs) with one of the crew members. And then the, the date is really disastrous because Seven doesn't have any skills. And she's actually, um, when they dance, she, she tears the guy's ligament. So actually Seven is quite masculine in her behavior and um, she she really breaks down all these stereotypes of what women are. So Seven's technological expertise is the product of her time as a Borg drone. So this is an interesting fact too because it becomes apparent how the cyborg figure that Donna Haraway theorized it does question the stereotype that women cannot embody traits associated with technological and scientific excellence. Uh, Some would say that Seven is actually the most scientifically brilliant crew member on Voyager, um, much more than any of the other male crew members or female crew members. So um, this is a very, very subversive aspect of Seven of Nine. And this is why I love her so much, because there's much more to her than what's on the surface. Um, a lot of Seven's behavior um, is quite quite subversive. Right, and then 
This is something that I found even more interesting is the construction of Seven's sexuality. So Seven actually displays very little interest in men and um and when she when she if she goes on a date then it's very awkward <laughs> and she's generally uninterested in developing any relationships with the opposite sex whether it's romantic relationships or not because the borg reproduce through assimilation rather than biology as humans do so um seven never talks about uh having children she never talks about um, relationships. She never pursues any romantic relationships. And that is basically, it's kind of a trope that's, that's been around for centuries. Uh, not centuries, maybe decades. Um, it's a stereotype that women are always looking for a romantic relationship. But Seven doesn't. And her approach to relationships is also very calculated. Um, I'm watching now the episode called 1159 uh, that talks about, um, yeah, is it is it Shannon O'Donnell, Captain Janeway's like great, great aunt, 15 generations removed. And then Neelix tells Seven of Nine, you should look into your, your uh, genealogy too. And then Seven is like, yeah, okay, I will. And then um, they talk about like how genes get carried over and character and things. And then um, the Neelix tells Seven, oh, you, you know, maybe you also want children one day. Maybe a few like 7.5s running around. And then Seven just looks at him like, I'm going to kill you. You know, so Seven really, she's really not concerned about procreation, about romantic relationships, about marriage or anything like that, which is also quite subversive. So for Mia Consalvo, in this way, Seven provides a challenge to standard representations of women as almost always exclusively heterosexual and only interested in pursuing heterosexual romance. Okay, and this is where the interesting part comes in. Um, Seven has, due to the show's subtext, Seven has also been read as a queer character by many fans and academics. And I think I talked about this in the episode on on radical feminism, but some some have argued that certain parts of the dialogue in episodes like The Killing Game and Dark Frontier suggest that Seven might be bisexual. Um, then there's, of course, that whole thing about Janeway and Seven, all the fan fiction. I think there's over, over 700 fan fictions that pair Janeway and Seven together as like a queer couple. Um, but this is a very interesting fact. Jerry Taylor, who was the executive producer of Voyager, actually initially made the suggestion that Seven should be an, expl an explicitly lesbian or at least bisexual character. And then obviously this would have been the first for Star Trek at that time. Um, finally, now in Discovery, there are openly queer characters. But up to 2017, there weren't any explicitly queer characters in Star Trek. Um, ex except for, for like the one scene where we see, um, what's his name, from the original series, um, George Takei, that played uh, Sulu, that's his name where we see Sulu go off with his husband in the J.J. Abrams movies. But um, that's that's literally it. So that time, that would have been quite um, <laughs> quite 
subversive, you know, in the 90s to have this openly queer character. But that was rejected by Paramount and um, who, who attempted to reinstate her sexuality by pairing her up with Voyager's first officer, Chakotay, towards the end of season seven of Voyager. So, and I wonder, you know, I thought about that a lot because that seemed really out of character, the the pairing up of of Seven and Chakotay. But um, I was thinking about that and I thought that, you know, maybe because Seven has so much queer potential because she's really not... Her behavior is not like the average woman. And also because of the the show's subtext and some of the dialogue, she very easily fits into the queer... She could very easily be a queer character. And I'm wondering if they didn't pair her up with Chakotay at the end to kind of say that, no, she's not queer. We know that all of this queer stuff about Seven exists, but she's not. Uh, She's with Chakotay. Um, That's just my take on it. I don't know. So, you know, although heteronormative sexuality won the day, um, in these ways, the cyborg embodied by Seven of Nine, it does to some extent question the dualistic conceptions of gender and of sexuality as well. It is possibly maybe because she is a cyborg that, that she is so easily read as a queer character because she's not a woman in any in any real sense of the word. Uh, she's, she's actually part machine, part woman. So she's actually both and she's neither. And I think that's why her sexuality is so fluid. And um, this is really something I only want to talk about in another episode is Seven of Nine in Star Trek Picard. Obviously, we'll, we see towards the end of Picard, like the final scene of season one, that she's interlocking hands with another female crew member, which suggests that, oh, maybe she is bisexual. But that's something, a discussion for next week or maybe the week after, so you can look forward to that. But um, it's very interesting, Seven of Nine's sexuality. Right, so moving on... Um, and I've mentioned this earlier, unfortunately, despite the subversive potential that this female cyborg and that seven of nine um, possesses or presents, as was foreshadowed in the representation of Maria in Metropolis in 1927, cyborg women have been sexualized since their inception. And seven of nine is no exception. Most cyborgs they do show the positive pairing of women and technology, uh, which is good because that that really uh, destroys the stereotype that women and technology can't be compatible. But they still perpetuate what Laura Mulvey theorized as the male gaze and women's to be looked at this. So another theorist have, has argued that these female cyborgs like Seven of My- Nine They are sentimental, existential, sexualized, and fetishized in alarming ways. And they perpetuate the myth of women as prostitute vamp, as the monstrous feminine, and they are mostly sexy and sexually exploited. Right, so Seven of Nine, unfortunately, despite all her various subversive possibilities, she's still extremely, extremely sexualized. So you can see her her classic skin-tight silver cat suit that emphasizes her overtly feminized figure uh, in the in the art for this this episode. You can also just Google Seven of Nine, and that that picture will come up. Um, she's extremely feminized, 
she has blonde hair, fair skin. She wears high heels. I don't know why you need to wear high heels on a ship, on a starship. It seems very impractical. And she's the only female crew member on Voyager that does not wear the unisex Starfleet outfit. And she's also presented as heterosexually attractive. <laughs> so all of the, a lot of the male crew members, like Harry Kim, um, or, or, like they often swoon over Seven because she's just so um, she's she's so sexualized and idealized too. I read in an article that Jerry Ryan had to wear this corset to make her waist um, thinner, and they actually said um, in the show they're like, no, that. The, you know, it's not a it's not a corset. Those ridges on Seven's uh, waist is actually her Borg stomach, <laughs> um, and then she also uh, had to wear uh, something to make her breasts a bit bigger. She's she's very very sexualized, and I've talked this uh, talked about this before for Kate Mulgrew. Uh, who played Captain Janeway, it was clear that the writers simply brought Seven onto the show to appeal to the largely male Star Trek audience. Uh, Kate Mulgrew mentioned mentioned at her panel at Denver Comic Con in 2017 that she openly refused to have Janeway be sexualized or involved in any sort of sexual situation. That is famously uh, Kate Mulgrew's uh, input into Captain Janeway. She said that Janeway will not date and she will not be sexualized. And um, Kate Mulgrew then at that Comic-Con, she revealed that she thinks that it be, that was another reason why they introduced Seven. It was to create sex appeal um, in, in Star Trek Voyager. So unfortunately, Seven of Nine has that side too. There's a theorist, her name is Despina Kakudaki. She compares Seven of Nine to the 1940s American pinup. So, for this theorist, the contemporary cyborg has elements of the pinup that transforms the cyborg into a pornographic subject, despite its power of admitting women's relation to the military industrial complex and the increasing freedom it implies. So, the pinup, like the cyborg, is an illustration of a beautiful woman created through tropes of transparency and emergence, who is registered in terms of machinery and fetishism. And um, yes, unfortunately, Seven of Nine is a classic. Uh, she can be read as a pinup too, um, because of her exaggerated feminine figures. And because they are cyborgs, because she's a cyborg, she encourages the male viewer to identify with machines too. And um, another interesting observation that this theorist makes is that the pinup's extreme femininity, uh, this is the 1940s pinup, was symptomatic of the intense homophobia of America in the 1940s. So it's interesting that Seven kind of dabbles with bisexuality or homosexuality. Um, her overt feminization the, the fact that they made her so explicitly feminine may also be a way to frame her as heterosexual, which denies this fluid gender identity that the cyborg possesses. Now, as I mentioned earlier, in Haraway's estimation, the cyborg is supposed to live in a world that is post-gender or beyond gender, but 
unfortunately, instead, instead of transcending her gender, seven of nine displays an exaggerated gender that is explicitly feminine, at least in terms of her appearance. In Mia Consalvo's analysis of Seven, she notes that although Seven is clearly shown as unwilling to gender her behavior in a feminine way, her appearance works against this unwillingness and undermines her claims to an ungendered existence. So in Seven's instance, despite presenting an alternative to femininity through her scientific excellence, masculine character, and her unwillingness to engage in heterosexual relationships, her excessively feminine body unfortunately contradicts these aspects of her character and clearly indicates that the gender she should become is female. So yes, that is it in terms of Seven's sexuality and her sexualization. There's also another aspect of her that I will briefly explore before I wrap up. Now, in 21st century industrialized societies, new technologies such as microelectronics, telecommunication networks, nanotechnology, virtual reality, computer-mediated computer mediated communications, and other forms of computer technology suggested that the body has become redundant. Um, so this has got to do with the whole idea of the cyber realm being disembodied. So according to Amanda Dupriere, Contempt for the body and a move towards a no-bodies sentiment already started to be manifested in 17th century Enlightenment thinking and it has morphed into 21st century cyber projects that express aversion towards the body. Anti-body ideals can be seen in popular culture in the cyberpunk genre, but it is also explored in sci-fi. What does this mean for feminism? Well, uh, let me briefly um, talk about essentialism again. Essentialism claims that to be a woman is to have a number of so-called inborn attributes that stretch across time, place and context. For example, motherhood um, that says that, okay, all women are naturally mothers because they are women. So that would be an essentialist reading. Now again, according to Amanda Dupriere, it is especially embodied female experiences that exclude men, such as menstruation, uh, giving birth and nursing, and so forth, that perpetuate these essentialist views of women. To say that all women are kind, emotional, and soft-hearted because all women are mothers and all mothers are like that. So this is what essentialism is. Therefore, in Western feminist theory, the essentialized and embodied female body has become considered as one of the main reasons for women's enslavement to patriarchy. Now, new technologies, promises of disembodiment, so the idea that on the internet you can be any gender or you are kind of uh, divorced from your physical body, it therefore seemed to provide women with the possibility to transcend these essentialist notions of gender which are apparently caused by being embodied as a woman. Okay, um, I hope that argument makes sense. <laughs> Basically, the idea that um, on, on the, the cyber realm, you can be disembodied, you don't need to say what your gender is, or uh, who you are, or you can transcend many aspects of yourself, actually online, ideally. Um, that is something that women considered to be uh, possibly empowering at the turn of the century. 
And this is also informed by the Cartesian mind-body split, which suggests that uh, the mind and the body are separate. So that if I were to implant my mind into someone else's body, um, that wouldn't affect my mind at all. Obviously, this idea is quite problematic because I really don't think that if I put my, my brain into someone else's body that I would be okay because our bodies impact our brains and our brains impact our bodies and there's this reciprocal relationship but because of the invention of new technologies in the late 1990s and early 2000s people more and more started to to see the 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 brain as an informational pattern rather than actually um, something that that is part of the body uh, so this is called the Cartesian mind-body split. So Seven of Nine, she also encourages this notion that of the Cartesian mind-body split and often expresses her disdain for the body and considers it inconvenient to maintain. And then there's one very interesting Voyager episode. It's called Body and Soul. And I love this episode. It is so funny because for the, yeah, let me explain what happens first. So uh, Voyager's male holographic doctor's consciousness is transferred into Seven of Nine's body via her cortical implant. So the doctor is a hologram that has no organic body. And this is perhaps what um, the, the epitome of what Catherine Hales coined this term um, the epitome of the idea that we are informational patterns. The doctor is just, um, he's, he's, he, he's, he's a hologram. So um, he's just an informational pattern, but he's a person that is as real as any other person on the Voyager crew. Now, what happens in this episode, after being imprisoned on an alien ship that resents holograms, the doctor hides from the interro interrogators in one of seven cybernetic implants. So Seven's mind therefore contains her and the doctor's consciousnesses and we see the personality of the doctor take over Seven's body. And I thought that this was quite interesting. The fact that the doctor's mannerisms are much more feminine than Seven's. So he much more successfully embodies Seven's hyperfeminized and sexualized body than she actually does, which is another thing that makes a cyborg so interesting and that allows the cyborg to break down these boundaries. What is also interesting about this, the way that the doctor embodies Seven's body, <laughs> suggests that gender is not a stable identity that is fixed from, from birth, but it is rather a stylized repetition, repetition of acts through time, which Judith Butler believes could provide the possibility of gender transformation. Now, the idea of gender performativity is something that Butler theorized for a long time. She said that actually gender is not something that's inherent to, to any one of us, but it's rather just a repetition of acts through time that makes this masculine and that feminine. And um, I partly agree with that theory. And this show explicitly shows that actually gender is a construction. Um, Gender is not something that's inherent. Um, seven, who is female, if gender was inherent to to our sex, then seven as a female should be feminine, but she's not. Rather, she only becomes feminine when the male doctor inhabits her body, which I thought was very interesting. And then another interesting thing happens in this episode. 
the doctor who is in Seven's body, presumably as a woman, he kisses the male captain, but also as a man falls in love with the female lieutenant on the ship, and I quote, he becomes sexually aroused, as Seven states, in her body when the female officer massages him or her, <laughs> massages the doctor in Seven's body. So once again, we see that this embodiment and this idea that, you know, our brains are just informational patterns and not directly linked to our bodies, um, it subversively provides a more fluid gender identity than that of the essentialized embodied female body. Um, yeah, I thought that was quite interesting. And once again, we see how fluid the cyborg's gender is um, and how queer it actually is, which I think is quite subversive in some ways. So yes, that was it on Seven of Nine, um, at least the Seven of Nine that we see in Voyager. In an episode one or two weeks from now, I will definitely look at the new version of Seven of Nine that we see in Star Trek Picard. So I'm sorry if this episode was a bit too academic. You can give me feedback. Um, if it was, then I will try to avoid doing this in the future. But I really hope you enjoyed this episode on Seven of Nine. And uh, please hit the subscribe button. And then I'm looking forward to doing another episode maybe on the new Mortal Kombat movie uh, next week and then on the rebooted version of Seven of Nine, perhaps the week after. Thank you for listening once again and live long and prosper. This show is brought to you by Holosuite Media. Computer, list other available Holosuite Media programs. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, The Expanse, an Enterprise podcast. Trip's able to get that taken care of in, in a couple hours, because I think he had also had to realign the, the warp coils a little bit to, to get it to, to work. Back on the, uh, the Bird of Prey, Soong tells him that he's going to take them to, to the Briar Patch. I'm not even going to attempt to call it or, you know, pronounce it in its original Klingon <laughs> at this point. Uh, um, lazy, lazy. Well, you Lacking know. commitment. <laughs> <laughs> Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, Random Trek Review, a Star Trek review podcast. We get kind of that funny little bit where he's got the relationship book and I guess maybe they're foreshadowing a little bit of, you know, future... You know, hunk Odo. <laughs> the, the, like, romance book was hilarious. He had a funny line. I forget what it was exactly now. I didn't write it down. I only read three chapters. Oh, yeah, that's it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, was, that was pretty good. And they definitely do this. When they have kind of a heavy, deep episode, they'll sometimes put a little bit of a joke or, or something light off the top. Computer, deactivate Holosuite.